0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: So commemoration anniversary is, is remembering what has happened, right? But we remember every day what has happened, and we pray for those who have lost their lives every day. We do not need a fixed day to actually remember them, like a commemoration anniversary day. So that is something that no, we, as, as Muslim Association, are not doing it. That was
2: Muhammad Rizwan, president of the Otago Muslim Association, speaking to the Otago Daily Times in a video interview for its website. And there he was explaining why the group wouldn't be taking part in the planned memorial service in Christchurch this weekend, which was eventually, of course, cancelled less than 24 hours before it was due to begin as a precaution against the spread of coronavirus. Now that would likely have cast a shadow over the event in any case, but long before that became an issue, Mr. Rizwan said that some Kiwi Muslims were unhappy about the event going ahead in the first place.
1: But if you talk to the victims and the families of the victims, most of them, they will tell you they don't want it. Mm -hmm. They just want to move on. They don't want to remember it again, you know.
2: Muhammad Rizwan went on to say that one reason for that was that marking anniversaries wasn't actually typical in Islamic culture. And that was also a point made by Dr. Masoon Salama, a woman whose husband was badly injured and her son Atta Aliyan killed in the attack a year ago. And she said this to Kim Hill on Saturday morning on RNZ National.
3: We don't have an annual, you know, Remembrance Day uh, for us, you know. Once the janazah is done, uh, three days... We close the chapter, but we still live the legacy of our loved ones. And we move on with our lives. So you want to remember your loved ones, but not necessarily to remember that day. Exactly, yes.
2: The Otago Daily Times also reported recently that other Muslim associations had also distanced themselves from commemorations. But the Muslim Association of Canterbury took the matter into their own hands, with a website of its own, One Year On, which says this. It has been created to make it easier for our small community to respond to the many requests we get from New Zealand and overseas media. We hope you find it useful. We trust that media will respect our community's privacy and well-being at this sensitive time. Among six Message from the Mosque videos on the One Year On site, which people are invited to watch and share, is one by a young woman named Mulki, one of the survivors of the attacks a year ago, and she made it clear in her video she didn't relish the anniversary either.
0: The main
1: theme in the next couple of weeks is going to be, like, you know, a year on, a year from now. But for me, it's just kind of been, like, every day since March 15th, going through the same thing. Like, for me, a year on, two years on, three years on, it's not going to really be any different. It's literally every day since and how I am right now. So, um, and I guess it's similar for a lot of people, that are going through the same thing, is that it's been every single day.
2: And she's not the only one in the One Year On video series who feels that way. But Al Noor Mosque spokesperson Tony Green says on the site the community wants its own videos shared far and wide, and some have been. Christchurch Press reporter Charlie Gates, for example, turned Mulkey's message into a story for Stuff.co.nz, the most read news website in this country. And the one year on site itself hosts other media reporting, for instance, a series of digital stories by and about the lives of Kiwi Muslims. This is Us, hosted by RNZ. I
3: love hearing stories about my family. They are early stories of resilience, racism, and building a community. My nana always recounts stories of his grandfather's arrival.
2: More stories in that series were released each day this past week in the run-up to this weekend's anniversary, and there were many more personal tales in the media too. TVNZ1 on Tuesday, for instance, aired We Are One, a documentary following six of the families through their first year after the attacks. The atrocity a year ago has also had an effect on some of the journalists who were suddenly confronted with it that day and their news organisations. And also among the anniversary-related content rolled out in the media this past week was a sequence of long interviews with Christchurch journalists who found themselves on the scene that day. He hasn't
3: wanted to talk publicly again uh, with the anniversary approaching, which I mm-hmm. absolutely respect. But obviously, you know, people deal with... Uh, anniversaries of tragedies in such a different way
0: yes yeah, it's true it's true
2: TVNZ's Lisa Davies, there talking to Reverend Frank Ritchie, who styles himself as the media chaplain, and that was from his series of interviews called Friday Prayers. Another in that series was Thomas Mead, then a young reporter with NewsHub. He was one of the first on the scene at the El Noor Mosque, along with camera operator Mike Johnson. And his interview at the scene with wheelchair bound Fareed Ahmed at the police cordon was then seen all over the
0: world. So, were you inside the mosque at the time of the shooting? Where were you this afternoon? I was inside the mosque, uh, um, I was in the side room
1: uh, and uh, the imam had started the sermon as uh, usually... Last
2: May, Thomas Mead said he'd been struggling with guilt ever since the attack as his life had returned to normal. And in that Friday prayer series, he
0: told the host Frank Ritchie this. Because at the end of the day, nothing that I've experienced or any of us have experienced will ever compare to the kind of trauma Mm -hmm that they've gone through and then the kind of grace um, and you know love that they displayed in response to that. It's, it's then we should really thank.
2: Well this week I asked Thomas Mead if he understood the reservations of those who didn't really relish this weekend's commemorations.
0: There are a mix of opinions amongst the people that I've spoken to personally and I also think amongst the leadership in the Muslim community about how much we do to Discuss this event. It's really the anniversary that no one wanted, if you think about it. Uh, but sort of the guiding factor that I've been taking personally is that the Imam of the Al Noor Mosque here in Christchurch has said that it's an opportunity to look back and reflect and look at the people who were affected. So um, that's one thing I sort of took to heart. It is something you wrestle with because you know we have contacts and people that were spoken to over a very long period of time. Uh, ever since the attack, and some of them didn't want to be involved uh, because it is too traumatic when you think about what they've been through. But others, um, particularly people I spoke to in the days afterwards, were very open uh, about talking about it. And, you know, th- this this whole time, I've just continually been amazed at how open some of these victims are. You know, just just last week, as as I prepared a story for the anniversary, Um, I was invited back into uh, one of the victims' homes and made to feel welcome and very keen to to speak about the things that he's been through. And it's very humbling to see their approach. They're very hospitable and very welcoming.
2: I and mean, it was interesting that uh, the Muslim Association of Canterbury created their own content, their own website, their own interviews, and, and encouraged people to share them. And in part, the, the site says that that was actually to keep the media at arm's length a little from people who might not want to interact with them at this time. Does that worry you that perhaps some people, you know, that either they have to do this or maybe that they don't see the media as an ally, but possible not as an enemy, but maybe as a source of sort of unwanted pressure on them at this time?
0: I think part of it is just the scale of it, because it's not just the local media here. I mean, we have contacts, we have people that we've spoken to and met, so we're not going through those official channels typically. But, you know, they're also getting these requests from international media all over the world, and that I think has become potentially quite overbearing for them, just the sheer number of requests that they're getting, Um, whereas... Whereas for me personally, I'm able to go back to the people I met then and you know they're only getting one or two or three requests and it's something that they can manage. But those core core people right at the centre who, who lead the mosques and people in senior leadership there, I think they're just getting completely inundated.
2: And now that, have you noticed there are international reporters in town that perhaps are not acting with the same degree of empathy and understanding as New Zealand reporters who now have some experience of it um, have, have encountered. I mean, th- this happened previously after the, the quakes in Christchurch as well, sort of p- a bit more uh, aggressive, shall we say, um, international reporters wanting personal stories and images and also after the the Pike River uh, tragedy.
0: Mm. It's something I noticed a lot at the actual time, because obviously the international media just flocked in immediately afterwards and, and we heard a few sort of horror stories of, you know, international snappers taking pictures over fences and hounding um, victims. I mean, at one time, me personally, I was going into the hospital hospital and someone from, I actually don't know where they were from, I think they were from London, we were going with one of the victims to interview people in hospital and they sort of tried to latch on and become part of our party without really asking or getting any of the permission. There were people live streaming inside the hospital on their phones, things like that. So that certainly happened at the time. Uh, I haven't noticed too much of it now around the anniversary. I don't know whether they're coming back. There definitely is a different tone in some of the stories that they do around the alleged gunman, I've noticed a lot more of a focus on him, uh, whereas I think in New Zealand, uh, typically across the board, we've taken much more of a focus on the actual victims who are affected.
2: Yeah, if we go back to the day last year, uh, I mean, you were right on the scene there very quickly at the police cordon, and there was that extraordinary interview you did with Fareed Ahmed, and uh, I mean, I say extraordinary, it was was his calmness, the, the way he gave a measured account of what had happened at a point where his his own wife was missing and we now know you know she didn't survive it um I mean, does that come back to you because I mean I was watching it live at the time and uh, you barely able to believe how he was how composed he was and how he was conducting himself uh that this wasn't done at some remove later on or something like that does, does that moment come back to you
0: it's something I think about often because I have continued to keep in touch with Fareed and, and done many stories with him over the last year. But yeah, particularly around, particularly over the last few days, as we prepare for the anniversary, I've thought back to that moment. It's exactly as you say. I just, just his ability to be calm and clearly deliver exactly what was happening in that moment despite going through the trauma himself. I I, I don't know how he did it. And he's kept that same incredible attitude, even opting to to forgive, um, you know, the alleged shooter in the the days afterwards, after learning that his wife, Husna, had died. Yeah, of all the stories that I've done, you know, I've done a few big disaster stories in in my career with the Kaikata earthquake and the you know different wildfires and floods and disasters and whatever. I've never met a group of people who were so open to being interviewed at a traumatic time because typically in these types of situations, people feel that the media, often the television media in particular, because the cameras are there. And, and you couldn't have known it at the time, when you broadcast
2: that conversation with him at the police cordon, but that it would be broadcast around the world is not not that surprising because it was so striking. And there would have then been news editors all over the world saying, get me that guy, that's the guy we need. And uh, it would have been almost immediate for him, I imagine, that uh, people would have been after him from media outlets all over the world.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly what happened. It it, it was almost a line at his house and... It was almost like a conscious decision. I don't know. I can't. I can't speak for him. But it was certainly something he was comfortable doing and wanted to do. And part of me wondered whether you know so much of the coverage internationally of Muslims has been negative because of things that have happened overseas, uh, and it sort of struck me that maybe this was an opportunity for him to set the record straight in a way and show what the Muslim faith is really about, which is love. And as he said so eloquently and so beautifully uh, and in a message that was heard around the world, it is about forgiveness. You know, I think in the last few days, I don't know why it's sort of been on my mind, I suppose, just thinking back, just being more than any story I've ever done, just so close to the suffering of others. Uh, and that and that 's something that's certainly sticks with you and stays with you in the days and months afterwards,
2: and speaking of the days and months afterwards it 's interesting that um, it had a big ripple effect right through an, an organization as big as r n z and that um staff were cycled in and out of Christchurch. Care was taken not to leave people with that story uh, for too long because um, and, the, and the demands from overseas media kept coming. it had an effect on um, leave, appointments, even the Parliamentary Press Gallery, reporters had to be taken out of that. Others, It, it really had a ripple effect right through the organisation. Did you feel the same in, in the more close um, environment of you know the Christchurch Bureau?
0: Well, at least for me anyway, I can only speak for myself, it just felt like we were stuck in a tunnel then and it was almost like nothing else was happening in the world and we just wanted to keep working on that story for as long as our bodies would allow us to. And I remember at one point, I was told that I had to uh, take a couple of days off because we'd already worked. You know, we, it was a Friday, so I'd already worked the full week, and then the weekend, and then a few days after that. And I just didn't want to stop. And I don't think anyone did. But there certainly, yeah, it, it was a good decision by uh, by my bosses then to take us off because there's only so much you can take at one time of being so exposed, I suppose, to the suffering of others.
2: I can recall uh, going to Christchurch to do another um, one-year-on kind of programme. This was after the 2011 quake, and I spent time at the uh, sort of emergency um, TV3 in Addington at the old, old raceway. And Jeff Hampton, a former reporter, spent a lot of time with me, took me around the city, which was great. Um, within a couple of years, I mean, Jeff Hampton uh, was gone, um, Phil Corkery produced these senior figures. Do you feel there's perhaps a danger as you look at? every media organisation doing these comprehensive series, you know, each day this past week, for example, the likes of Stuff and the Herald rolling out these multimedia things, or are you one of those perhaps that feel actually, you know, maybe less is more and there's a little too much of of this kind of coverage, you know, both for the the average citizen and people who really were affected by it in Christchurch?
0: It's certainly something that um, we should think about. Maybe one of the problems is that none of the media organisations are talking to each other. We've all got our own plans and we all want to commemorate the victims in in our own way Uh, and maybe the total cumulative effect of that is too much for some. But it does Uh,
2: become a really valuable and powerful kind of historical resource. That stuff will be there online and it is quite a body of work though, isn't it?
0: That's the thing as well. I think if there's ever an opportunity to go back and remember the emotion and the feeling of that day it's the anniversary and for me personally with my stories that's what I've tried to do and then move it forward to how they are doing now it may be too much for some I I think it is important work and it is really important to continue to honor these people and to continue to hold them up uh, as an example of some really great amazing New Zealanders great Kiwis Finally, Thomas, uh, in the past
2: year, media have exposed and reported some cases of far-right individuals and groups, some disturbing stories, in fact, um, you know, hinting at their, their racist, violent intent. Someone who's an expert like Paul Spoonley, the academic who's been researching extremism for uh, many, many years, he warned this week that more needs to be done by New Zealand, uh, not specifically the media, but New Zealand as a country to deal with the problem. Do you think that this is something that the media shouldn't lose focus on?
0: It is really important to continue reporting on that. I think if you look back, it was something that the media in general didn't really understand. At least for me personally, you know, I sort of saw white supremacy before this event as a bit of. A joke almost, or something not to be considered, because or even something that Christchurch had a bit of a reputation
2: for, you know, visibly, you know, skinheads and so on, going back a number of years.
0: Yes, and and you kind of thought of them as as a marginalised group in society who had these awful, abhorrent, racist views uh, that were just kind of in the background and they weren't really a threat. I, I never expected anything like this. To happen. And now that I think, you know, others have described it as our innocence being shattered as a society, now we know that this kind of event can take place, I think you will start to see a lot more emphasis and a lot more journalism focused on really rooting out that white supremacy and showing it exactly for what it is. But but there is a problem with it. When do you decide to do the story about someone who has these abhorrent views? And so, you know, they're posting these messages and these photos to a group of 20 people on Telegram or, or whatever. Do you then do the story and broadcast that to a million people and, and continue to spread their message? When do you make the decision to highlight it? And when do you make the decision to ignore it uh, it's a tough ethical question uh, that we will have to continue working through
2: yeah making the judgment about where they're right really likely to cause harm or encourage other people to do so that's um something but then again you know you'd look at the actions of um, the, the guy who's on trial and you think well there's one individual who was able to cause absolute chaos and it wasn't foreseen it's a tough one
0: when you look at it, what what do these people who are posting these threats and messages want? Well, they want their message spread as wide as they can. And if we highlight it, are we just actually doing what they want? But on the other side, if you don't report on it and just leave it in the background and don't challenge those views and hold them to account, do they then continue to grow? And then we end up with where we were on March 15. It, It is really, really difficult. That was
2: Thomas Mead, a TV reporter for News Hub on March the 15th last year who was among the first to arrive at the Al-Noor Mosque. Now he's one of TVNZ's reporters in Christchurch covering this week's commemorations and the anniversary. Not all the special programs about March the 15th, 2019, lately, have been about the personal stories. Some have raised thorny issues that New Zealand needs to confront as well. And one of those is the RNZ podcast series, The Guest House, hosted by former RNZ journalist Mohammed Hassan and made with independent online news site, The Middle East Eye. I'm a Muslim New Zealander. In this five part series, I'm going to try and unpack what it felt like for me and other people in my community after Christchurch how difficult it was to make sense of something senseless and to try and answer this nagging question, do we belong in this country? Attitudes to immigration, belonging and racism are all raised in episodes of The Guest House with people who have experienced and confronted those issues. Last Wednesday, the RNZ newsroom podcast The Detail investigated dissatisfaction over the distribution of significant sums donated to victims' relief. And last weekend, RNZ's insight was entitled Ignored by the State, and it was the story of three Muslim women whose warnings of far-right hostility weren't taken seriously enough before March 15, 2019. On the Conversation website last Wednesday, Massey University academic Paul Spoonley, who's researched far-right extremism in New Zealand over decades, said it remains a high-level threat here. And he said he hoped New Zealand would stop believing it was immune to far-right extremism and violence after the shock of the killings one year ago. But now, he says, he's not sure enough has changed. My report card for New Zealand is that we still need to do more, including keeping the public better informed that the problem hasn't gone away. Just ask those who continue to be targeted. Extremists like Christchurch man Philip Arps have been jailed after being exposed in the media this past year. And just last Monday, Stuff's Thomas Munch and Newsroom's Mark Dalder both reported that a member of the far-right Action Zealandia organisation was planning possible crimes, sounding out sources of guns and reaching out to dangerous neo-Nazi groups overseas, including the base in the US. And two other people affiliated with Action Zealandia have recently been arrested, including a teenager following a threat made to worshippers at the al Mosque and a 27-year-old soldier. The New Zealand Herald ran the digital series The Ripple Effect in five daily parts this week. And Stuff.co.nz hosted Nine Bullets, a seven-episode multimedia online series featuring the recovery of Christchurch mosque attack survivor Temel Atatuju, made by Stuff and Christchurch company Frank Films.
1: Is this okay for you to do this today? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm confident. You're okay.
2: Yeah, it can be some uh, flashbacks or something like this, but I take my old medication just before I come. Please welcome.
1: How many would have been here with you Mm -hmm. in this room?
2: Nine Bullets was produced for Stuff by Frank Films founder Gerard Smythe, who's done more than anyone to record for posterity the consequences of, and responses to, Christchurch's traumas in recent years. And Nine Bullets was directed by his colleague Jendi Harper, a former TV3 reporter who also covered the quakes in Christchurch in 2010 and 2011.
1: I didn't um, realise before I did it just how much he wanted to talk about the detail of what happened that day. Um, we did the whole thing in probably 30 minutes. What he wanted to talk about, I
2: followed. And uh, some of the associations, the Otago Muslim Association, for example, said they didn't want to take part in this anniversary and felt that it wasn't really a thing for them. Um, the Muslim Association of Canterbury created some of their own content, partly that this was because they didn't want the media intruding on people at a at a sensitive time, Uh, Do you get a sense this anniversary and perhaps all the media coverage that's gone on on with it uh, is not something they welcome?
3: I think think we're totally sensitive to the fact that not everyone wants to um, reflect on that day. And I think that's very similar to the um, situation journalists and wider media had following the earthquake anniversary. Exactly, you know, that, that same tragic event and that there will be sectors of our society who really just don't want to go back to that day just as there are people who also do want to do want to reflect and and acknowledge and and be together as a group of people so you're always going to get that with a disaster i think
1: and of course the other thing is these people come from 45 different countries and 45 different cultures and um they have very diverse views on what might happen they're not one community
2: Jender, you mentioned there uh, the quakes in 2010, twenty eleven, you were a, mm. a TV news reporter then, so you know the breaking news and so on. but what what you're doing now with Frank Films is very different, and of course Jared, what you've done too, making the long form stuff like When a City falls. I mean you've described it haven't you Jared as it's its current affairs. it's It's in the middle, isn't it, news gathering and, and documentary?
1: Yes, it's this new form that we can do because we can distribute now on the internet. Um, so we can tell these short, compressed stories. We make one a week. We we make about I think last year twenty two, Jindi, mm-hmm.
3: twenty two episodes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and we try and do stories of national interest, but from here.
2: Yeah. So for example, there's the Changing South series. I think one and two, two series of that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So videos uh, around about five minutes in length, um, described as current affairs from the South Island for all New Zealanders.
1: Absolutely.
3: You know, you have your analytics that show that they're being picked up in Malaysia, and and it's it's just fantastic. I mean, I come from the day when we um, made stories on tape, and they got put in a library, and once they were played out, uh, they got put back in that library, and they were never seen again. So it's just fantastic to to be able to to share stories now and get such. feedback in that from all around the world. It's, it's fantastic.
2: Well, let's talk about one particular example, um, the, the video called What Happened at Christchurch Hospital on the Day of the Mosque Tragedy? Uh, and this is one produced with New Zealand On Air funding but able to go on you know, a range of different platforms.
3: We knew that this was obviously an unprecedented event in Christchurch in New Zealand. And there's also circumstances around that where the hospital is you know, the only trauma hospital In the region, and I had worked there previously in a media capacity, and so I knew some of the people involved. I had heard stories about what had gone gone down there that day, and what they'd had to do, how they'd coped.
1: They trusted D to bring a camera into the heart of the hospital. Um, Staff in the background became part of. We filmed just about everyone in ED, didn't we that day? And they all seemed to want to be involved. The hospital were we're trusting us to to do something compassionate i guess empathetic
2: i mean in the past i guess that kind of content could have made its way into a documentary that uh, might screen on television but we might not see for weeks or months or might have been some fleeting scenes in a in a news bulletin such as you know yeah. the kind jendy of would have been working for uh <laughs> back in 2011 in the christchurch quakes and uh you know here here today gone tomorrow
1: you know colin about. 15, 20 years ago, I made half-hour documentaries for a Sunday morning series on people with disabilities. These were about 27 minutes long, I think. The stories we tell today in five minutes have about the same information in them. (laughs) These are compressed stories, and I think there's a new contract with audiences where somehow our literacy has changed, and you can tell the same sort of story, you know, but really make it short and sharp. They're like little commercials in a way. For example, Nine Bullets,
2: that whole series rolled out uh, over the week. That's all hosted on Stuff, which is, you know, the most
1: visited news website in the country. Yes, it is. Um, uh, The history of that is that uh, a journalist at Stuff, Charlie Gates, um, had an idea. And uh, Carol Hirschfeld um, promoted that and rang me and said, would you like to meet Tamal and and develop and, and make such a story? We spent the next nine months with him and uh, didn't know where we were going with it. Um, When Tamal said, I want to go home to Turkey, I just can't be here any longer, Um, we went with him. We um, went to Friday prayers at the mosque where we happened to meet other people who had been shot and they had a very candid conversation. It was sort of like a home movie in a way, you know, it was pretty intimate stuff, but they really are suitable for this distribution on the web. A lot of these projects have been publicly
2: funded in one way or another by via New Zealand and air for various platforms. It's something you've been aware of in the past. One of your motivations for doing the kind of work you do is that, actually, although Christchurch is a big city, obviously, and Canterbury, an important region, it just doesn't feature in our national media as much as, uh, say, a certain big city up north and uh, uh, in the
1: capital. Yeah, that's sort of true, Colin. I think about 97%, to be accurate, of New Zealand on their funding for television storytelling, or visual storytelling, goes to Auckland. New Zealand On Air would say, well, Auckland f- um, production houses make stories for national distribution and tell stories about all of New Zealand. And, of course, there's a couple of things wrong with that. For a start, we don't get to tell our own stories here. Aucklanders tell our stories. And, secondly, they seldom do come anyway because it's, it's a big dent in their budget to fly down here with a crew. So um, we get left out, and a few years ago now, Canterbury University studied over three months uh, what New Zealanders saw of New Zealand on television, and 3% in that three months was of this region. Yeah, and of course that's at a time after we'd had a significant earthquake where there is so much to talk about, debate and discuss, but we have no vehicle to do such. Well, after the uh, 2011 quake, um, Gendy, I came down to make
2: a programme about how that had affected the media well, one mm-hmm. year on. And TV3 at the time was based in the old Eddington Raceway, um, the temporary sort of headquarters. <laughs> in fact, the whole MediaWorks operation, the radio stations and everything was there. Uh, Jeff Hampton, uh, reporter, uh, looked after me, showed me around the city and how things worked and didn't. Now, he was worried at the time about... The capacity of Christchurch's news gathering, and never really getting back to what it was previously. Mm. And uh, I mean, do you find, as a as a former reporter, the news gathering capacity just isn't? What it should be for a city Absolutely, of this Absolutely, yeah. Size.
3: I think I think that that's definitely the truth, Colin. Um, newsrooms have been decimated. I mean, at, at the time I was working for Campbell Live, uh, we, uh, you know, that show was was canned. Then we, I moved on to a program called Story, which also was canned. Um, so we lost uh, quite a few reporters through that. That was when I left. Um, and I think it's been a sinking-lid policy ever since, really. Uh, there's been no new roles created that I that I know of. I still do part-time work for Television New Zealand here. Yeah, the newsroom is, is definitely, you know, five, four or five reporters. Um, not back to when I recall in the city we had a, you know, a bustling TVNZ newsroom with, gosh, there would have been 13, 14, 15 full-time reporters covering covering a range of programmes. And then you get, you know, the flip side of that, Colin, is that during the earthquake there may have been, you know, a reducing number of Reporters, but a growing number of communication staff uh, working in various government organisations. I think the Sierra Comms team outnumbered journo's in the in the town by quite a rate. So, well,
2: you um, saw you saw that personally yourself because you worked for a time in communications. with I did. The yes, Canterbury I know just District a couple Health of years board.
3: ago. I did. A, I did a year. Have to say though, uh, CDHB Comms is a very lean mean team <laughs> compared to others in the city.
2: This past week, Jared, we've seen, of course, a lot of coverage uh, leading up to this anniversary. Do you feel that in total it's, it's been a good thing, it adds to the historical record and is an appropriate tribute to what uh, people in the Muslim
1: community in Christchurch went through and indeed the entire city? Yeah, I suspect it might be the case that we have this uh, huge, and it's extraordinary, isn't it? We have podcasts, we have television documentaries, we have internet web series. Uh, I suspect, though, that uh, it may well be too much at the moment, and that may lead to not enough in the future.
2: And now we've reached this one year on, what should now, do you think, will be the focus for an outfit like yours, which is... As you described it, it's, it's current affairs from the South for a national audience, but doesn't have to respond to, you know, daily or weekly news deadlines.
3: Yeah, I think it's just going to be for us definitely ongoing. Um, our, we like sort of to look at things from an issues-based... It's certainly in our agenda to to bring up topics around this. We, you know, it's, we're just not here for a one-year anniversary, obviously. We're here for the long haul. Is Christchurch a racist city? perhaps that's a story we might look into because that's certainly what the rest of the country looking in thinks of us and um... uh,
1: Of course Christchurch is a racist city, but is it any more racist or any less racist than any other part of New Zealand is the question. I'm not so sure that that's the case. and when you I was talking the other day to some people down at the mosque and they were saying that their hope from the publicity they've had in the last year is that they can be seen as mainstream New Zealanders, that something's demystified about Islam and, and that these new New Zealanders are really keen to be seen as um, people who are contributing to this country. Maybe that's a positive that might just come out of all of this.
3: And I think even from tamal 's story, from, from watching that and being involved a little in the process of it, um... I learnt so much about Islam,
1: that's a, yeah. and
3: that that's a great take home. You know, if we can all just learn a little, that's been the power of some of the coverage over this last week for me, anyway.
1: The coverage of what's happened with the mosque in the last few weeks has been historic, hasn't it? Because I don't think I can remember an well, I can't remember an occasion where every possible type of media in New Zealand has done something on one subject. You know, from television documentaries to the podcast to everyone's telling the same story in a different medium. Um, There's so many different types of stories can be told, from the widows to people who have been shot to the larger community. Uh, Lots of stories um, give us a better perspective, don't they? Jared Smythe and Jendy Harper, there from Frank Films, the makers of
2: Nine Bullets, a series for Stuff.co.nz, telling the story of Temel Atachoju, badly wounded in the Al Noor Mosque a year ago today.